This episode of Fermented Adventure the Podcast features Matt Check and Brian Crew. It was recorded at Stone and Key Cellars in Montgomeryville, Pennsylvania. Please take a moment to subscribe to be notified when the most recent episode has been uploaded. Feel free to reach out to Stone and Key Cellars and let them know what you thought about the podcast. Cheers! Ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guests. We are here at Stone and Key Cellars. I'm joined by Matt Check and Brian Crew, head winemaker and assistant winemaker to all things Stone and Key. Matt, talk about your role here, how you came to Stone and Key, and what is it you do? Uh, so it's a little over six years ago now that I started here with Stone and Key Cellars, and at first it was in a very limited production uh, responsibility. It was more on the end of in the tasting room and um, markets and all sorts of other things for the business, uh, but quickly got my uh, feet wet with the production end of things, fell in love with it, and then you know opportunities started to present themselves, and I started to put myself in in the right position to become the winemaker. Um, it happened quicker than I would have thought, but uh, I'm very happy that it did and very happy with um, the results so far. Really, the, the biggest thing and the greatest thing about it is being able to have the creative design behind our wines now um, and really push them to the next level. Um, so with being the head winemaker, I, of course, design our wines um, and maintain all the production scheduling behind it and what needs what it takes to make these wines great. Um, so that's what I handle from the day to day. So, so how did you become a winemaker? What's what's the process for you to become a winemaker? How did you get here? So I took definitely a backdoor to becoming a winemaker. I uh, originally had training as a sommelier through the Wine School of Philadelphia with uh, Keith Wallace, and um, that's what gave me my you know foot in the door here. Is I started working on the tasting room and using my wine knowledge as a sommelier um, to actually you know, discuss our wines with consumers and sell our wines to people as well. Um, but you know, as soon as you get you get your hands wet with winemaking or just even a little bit of the production thing, you either like it, love it, or don't want to ever do it. <laughs> as a kid, did you have an interest in making wine, or was there any kind Never. of background in your family for winemaking? Never, no. Um, the only background of wine in my family was drinking it. Um, it was always around uh, my family, as my parents are big wine drinkers. So um, I was always around wine in that regard, and kind of had. The thought that I might like wine, um, and I, I definitely started to see a difference in college when I was drinking wine while everybody was drinking, you know, Miller Lite. Um, so I knew there was something different about me at that point. But um, <laughs> something just wasn't right about you in college. <laughs> exactly. So um, really, what happened is uh, once I graduated college with a business management degree, 
I started working right away um, selling payroll solutions, which was a lot of fun, as you can imagine. Um, but about three years in, I was like, I need a change. So that's when I started going to the wine school in Philadelphia um, and really found my love of wine. Um, and then from there, it just snowballed until I became a head winemaker here at Stone & Key. Understanding wine and from a sommelier standpoint, how, does, how do you bring that to what you do as a head winemaker? Well, yeah, so really my first um, you know, time that I actually dealt with the wine was more in a blending capacity. So taking the finished wines and fine-tuning them to be something that's even more exceptional for our consumer's palate. Because uh, you know, not every wine comes out of the barrel perfect on its own. So there's a fair amount of blending for certain wines, and uh, that's where my palate originally uh, lended its helping hand to the winemaking process and then learning the actual production process of fermenting. Uh, the grape juice all the way into our fine wines uh, was the part that I had to learn on the job and luckily had a bunch of great people surrounding me to, uh, to really learn how to do it well. Like like Brian here. Absolutely. No, no, he's shaking his head no. no. Brian, how did you come to Stone & Key? What's, what's your travel, road travel to get here? I had a more secretive journey. Uh, for me, I was in property management for a long time, uh, but I was writing part-time for a winery in the West Coast. And most of what I was doing is more of the, uh, the fun descriptions of a wine to say, like, don't be intimidated. You, anybody can drink this. It's cool for dudes to drink rosé, things like that. Um, and I really wanted to write a more That should be a t-shirt. <laughs> it's cool for dudes to drink rosé. Get anybody, that up on the wall. Start selling it. rosé, yeah. Uh, but I wanted to know more technical things, so I wasn't all just trying to be funny and silly that I could actually explain, like, the wine process and stuff. So... I talked to some of the winemakers that were working with us and, you know, and I didn't understand a lot of what they were talking about as far as the technical aspect. So I started looking for jobs and being here in Pennsylvania, I found Stone & Key Cellars was looking for someone to work. So I came in at an entry level and I expected I'd be here for a little bit, learn a few things about the winemaking process, enhance my writing ability, and then probably walk away. Then I met this ginger over here, Matt, and... He was just as passionate as I was about pretty much all the same wines. It got me a little overexcited. And next thing you know, I'm like, I think I want to work with this guy. So it became a passion. It became a passion, and it's a good fit for you guys to work together, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, You you make a really good team as far as – you're also learning from each other, I would imagine, too. Yeah. Mostly him learning from me. Okay. Uh, That's kind of the way it works, right? The the, the student becomes a teacher pretty much, right? No, and it's, it's great because even like last night, you know, we both uh, did a class with Philly Wine School and it's like, we're both still learning, you know, as, as advanced as he is, you know, like we're both still there's learning. There's always something, let, yeah. let's face it, there's always something new to learn. There, yeah. There's always an experience to have that you haven't had before, right? Absolutely. I mean, just for, you know, one little example of that, in Italy alone, there's a recognized 10,000 great varieties. So to say that you know everything about each one of those great varieties is just insanity. Um, you know, in our lifetime, we probably won't taste all 10,000. Um, You've so just given me a new goal, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should try. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to live to be over 100 and now try all 10,000 varietals in Italy. That's yes. a good number one and two, right? Okay, now. that's fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's, that's where we are. And uh, I think it really caught my stride when I started to get into blending, much like how Matt did. Um, he has this wine called Obsidian, and it really kind of got me obsessed with what you can do with blends and uh, so I, I jumped on a, a Bordeaux style blend and got really excited about that and but that between that and Sauvignon Blanc being our probably the, the two things that we we're most passionate about um, 
that we share that. So I, um, yeah, I don't foresee uh, walking away from here anytime soon. Okay, well, and, and and the anklet, the ankle thing when you're around your leg, that That's that kind of keeps you in house too. So it doesn't <laughs> let you really go. Oh, wait. So. When did you put that on? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about so Stone and Key. I mean, if you come here, um, we're in Montgomeryville, Pennsylvania. You don't see any grapes growing outside the building. It, it, there's not, it's not a winery per se in terms of you grow your own grapes here. Talk about the process for making your wines. How do you, how do you accomplish that? Yeah, so we bring our grapes in from the West Coast. I mean, that definitely gives us an advantage of getting quality fruit uh, in our hands to make quality wines. Um, you know, you start with what Mother Nature gives you, and that's the grape itself that grows out in that field and, you know, gets good from the great sun or, you know, the soil structure and everything that um, is involved in the microclimate of where that grape grows. But, so we have that distinct advantage of being an urban winery and being able to source our fruit from, you know, great growing regions like Washington State, Yakima Valley, Columbia Valley, um, Lake County, California. Um, and that way we're able to make, you know, big, big wines that you're not used to seeing here in Pennsylvania. So it's definitely a distinct advantage for us to make quality wines. Um, over, you know, dealing with the struggle of making a quality wine um, out of a Pennsylvania grape, which is definitely a harder thing to do. And if we could get our hands on some quality fruit grown here in Pennsylvania, we definitely would love to. But there's actually not a lot of growers that sell a lot of fruit here in Pennsylvania. And ever since the uh, lovely spotted lantern fly, there's even less of those growers making fruit for us uh, out here on the East Coast. So um, it's a great, great uh, opportunity for us to use that fruit from the West Coast. Um, and it just so happens that we have our sister company, Keystone Homebrew Supply, that has been dealing in uh, those quality grapes for you know, over a decade. So um, it's it's easy for us to source it at this point because the owner has set a good groundwork with those growers for us. Um, and you know now working with those growers for you know like I said about a decade or so, um, we've been able to get into a really nice spot where they're growing the fruit the way that we like it. Um, so it's even better for us. Okay, so with, with these wineries, these, these producers, do you tell them what you're looking for? Do you kind of have an idea, you know, looking at, you know, your schedule as the wines you want to produce? Do, do you have that relationship or are they giving you a sense, hey, this is going to be a good year for this specific varietal? How does that work in the terms so of the relationship? We have uh, independent people that go to the vineyards and test the grapes for us. Um, so that we have a third party basically review, reviewing the fruit and letting us know how it's developing in any given vintage. Um, so we're able to see which ones are going to be better ones for us in that given year. Um, now, a part, a part that is a little bit unique to what we do here is also is that we produce wines for our customers as well. We do the custom crush type program. Um, so sometimes you're kind of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Sangiovese is not showing off this year, but the customer still wants to make Sangiovese. So you're still going to be making a Sangiovese. And that's where, you know, winemaking technique can come into it, where we have to do what we can to make sure that that wine becomes somewhat pretty damn good. So, so talk about that. So you have customers here that can make their own bottles of wine. Yep. yep. Um, and we're surrounded by barrels here. And yeah. this space smells great. I mean... <laughs> It's a great area, but so, so so how many how many how many people do that right now? Is that something that's uh, very popular? Is it is it rising yeah, in popularity? It's rising. Yeah. Every year we're seeing an uptick um, in our custom crush program. Uh, it's going to be a, a bit unique to see how this season goes, um, given what's happening around us. But um, I think if anything, we've only gained. Uh, good headway with our customers every year it seems that each group is either growing or adding more people to their group um, so we're right now we're producing 
around 100 to 120 barrels of red wine. Um, and out of those 120, about, depending on the given season, it's somewhere to 40 to 60 barrels are actually customer portion barrels. Um, whether it be the whole barrel or quarter barrels, that, that all depends on the size or quantity that they decide to make with us. Um, but yeah, so every year we're seeing that grow. Um, we had a big growth about four years ago. Uh, we actually went up by over 170% in one year. Okay, wow. Very nice. And now it's kind of tapered off uh, to where we're seeing growth of about 30% uh, annually in our Custom Crush program. Um, I do intend to see that grow even more um, over the next couple of years, especially since we've brought him online in the program now, too. He's is that part of your responsibility, Brian, right now, as far as helping the Custom Crush program? I think I'm scaring people away, honestly. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but no... The good thing about this, by the way, is this is a two-part thing that, that makes it interesting. One, you know, people could just contract us to make the wine. Uh, it's not even about, you know, just people coming in for fun. Like, someone could say, like, hey, listen, my family, we want a good wine made. Invest in a barrel, and we make it for them. They don't have to do any work. On the other hand, you know, yeah, like, if you want to make, like, a family uh, event out of it, you know, a whole year of making through the whole process and getting your family together, it's a good reason to get together, something unique to do. Um, and then on top of that, even just like people do like parties and stuff like for bachelorette stuff, like you'd be a part of a bottling line. So it's like, this is, this is something that it's great in so many ways because there's so many different, um, aspects of it that you can be involved in or not involved in. You could just walk away with the product, you know, if you want to, or be involved in the whole thing and learn a lot. Um, but yeah, like my thing is same as Matt, like we just, you know, we talk to people as much as we can about the wine. And a lot of times after people drink the wine. They, they want to know how it's made. And then after we tell them, and then we say, you know, we could be a part, you could be a part of this. You know, we could do it with you. Something as small as a quarter barrel. You know, it's not a huge investment to jump in on, but it's a lot of wine to walk away with. So, yeah. Did you have the same experience growing up? I mean, were, were, did your family, drink, mom and dad, did they drink wine? No. What was your experience early on with, I, with drinking wine? My, my parents were more of the Coors Light, and if they went to, you know, wine, you know, maybe they went for the, uh, the cheapest one they could find on a shelf. But uh, I drank a lot of beer, a lot of liquor, and then at some point I said, you know, I want something that I can just get a, a buzz a little bit quicker, you know, <laughs> okay. but not hit the floor right away. And, uh, you know. So you had a destination and a one, you had a place where how to get there, that was what you were working on. Exactly. And, and then I started finding wine, and then I, I started with the, the low end stuff, worked my way up a bit, and found a big difference, and got really excited about it. I started researching it on my own. Um, and my uncle Al was actually someone who was very big into wine, so when I'd be out in California visiting him, he'd often have something very interesting at the table, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll try that instead of this beer I'm drinking. And then I'd be like, wow, that's something else. What is this? You know, and look at it and be like, oh, if you know, you know uh, Noir from Oregon, wow, interesting. I didn't know Oregon had that. So, you know, you're always learning, and so anytime someone would offer me a drink, I'd say yes. Well, you, me yeah. you mentioned something right now. Number one, uh, you know, we're, we're heard many, many countries on the podcast. People may not be aware of the spotted lanternfly, mm. but you mentioned that. And how is that affecting some of the some of the growers that you're dealing with, or, or even something locally to, to some of the wineries and vineyards locally? As far as out west, not affected. Um, where this has been affecting, of course, the epicenter was out uh, out near Redding Kutztown areas where it first started, and then it moved east, south, and north from there. So, of course, we're getting now the most here um, in Pennsylvania. I mean, you could probably tell when you go outside, you probably see them, I would imagine. 
I haven't seen them yet this year. Not this year. But but They're last year they were really, really prevalent. Yeah, and that's not going to be slowing down anytime soon. Um, they have, I believe, reached down into Maryland now. Um, I'm not sure about Virginia just yet. It seems like there's some sort of cold block uh, up in the northern part of the Poconos where they haven't made it up into New York just yet. Okay. Um, but we'll see if that happens. I mean, it's a very invasive species. So, so what is that doing? What, what's your awareness? What is that doing to, to the wine production here, at least in Pennsylvania? So the biggest thing is um, it's making planting new vineyards very, very difficult because um, you have a mortality rate in new vines that's pretty high to begin with. You usually lose around 10% of new vines that are planted. But I've heard of reports seeing, with the spotted lanternfly being involved, uh, mortality rates in young vines of up to 40%. Wow. Um, now, it costs around 30 grand to plant a new acre. Um, so to lose 40% of that $30,000 investment um, is quite steep, especially for the vineyards in Pennsylvania. I mean. These aren't the millionaires like out on the West Coast that are starting vineyards, and it's not a big deal if they lose, you know, a half an acre or something. But here, you lose an acre or, or so of vines, you're really hurting the production. Um, but also, we haven't even seen the extent of what the damage the spotted lantern flies are actually causing because it, what it does, it actually rips off um, the bark of the vine itself. And what that does, they actually leave a little uh, mildew behind. And what that does is it, it actually gets bacteria and molds to grow right in that open wound on the vine. So yeah, the vine might have, might not have died today, but and it, so so down the road it's, it's hard to, it's hard to judge or tell yeah. today what might be affected a couple of years down the road. Exactly, exactly. And I mean not just vines; it's also impacting, of course, the cider uh, cider world with apple trees. Uh, orchards have been really heavily impacted. Uh, pretty much every fruit tree is getting nailed by the spotted lantern. And we'll talk to Jason a little bit more about that and, and maybe his foresight and in, in, in how they're, uh, um, you know, mitigating the impact of, of all that. But the other thing we're talking about today is, I mean, we're, we're masked up. We're, we're sitting here. We're, we got our six-foot distance, you know, between each other. Talk about, for Stony Key, talk about how the corona pandemic is affecting you and your business and what you're doing to make adjustments to that. You know, it's, it's been really difficult to try to navigate exactly how we're going to still have the contact with our customer because a lot of the winemaking program with our customers is hands-on where they get to be in here pulling a sample out of their barrel with us to taste it right there on the spot. Um, so we've been getting a little bit more unique about the process and um, we're right now in the stage where we usually do our blending sessions for our Chilean customers. So when we fine-tune their wines, usually we would have them in here for a blind tasting and we would do that with them. So now it's been to take home and do a virtual uh, Zoom blind, uh, blending session with them. Um, which it's definitely great that we have technology that lets us do that, um, but it's still not the same. And I mean, every time people are very thankful that we're doing it with them. Um, but they're like, we just want to be back at the winery. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think that, I think that's part of it. And, and, you know, Brian, you touched on it. it. It's really coming together and creating something, you know, as a group. Yeah. And I'm sure when these people had put their, you know, juice in the barrel, they weren't expecting this to happen. Yeah. Where they were expecting in their mind, you know, we'll come in, we'll do that tasting, we'll do the, the adjustments, whatever we need to do. Yeah. And, and keep moving forward. I mean, a lot of us have that same perspective, right? Yeah. We, we had no idea that, you know, curbside pickup and, and all the different things. It wasn't anything that you planned to do. Yeah. 
so how has it been how, how have you kind of like dealt with the effect of this and, and how as far as running your business and what you're seeing in terms of sales and production that's a bigger question I think for Jason yeah. um, but okay we could talk to Jason yeah, about that but overall I would say you know we are adapting um, and we're continuing to brainstorm ways to, to move even further with our adaptation but like right now curbside pickup that's been huge um, but as far as our barrel program that's something that we're still working on I mean the good thing is we have very good people we're working with um when we say to them, like, you know, we can't have contact right now, but we are working on all your barrels, making sure we're, we're making sure they're exactly where they need to be. Um, and if you're willing to do the, the, uh, the tasting, we will bottle you up some samples of your stuff so you can taste it and email us back your notes or again, do the, you know, the Zoom call and do a virtual tasting all together. And just for now, uh, you know, who knows, maybe in the fall. We'll, we'll end up being with a little bit lighter restrictions. Maybe you can have people here and we can be at safe distances and have people taking turns being part of things um, or just whittle it down to certain parts of the winemaking process they can be involved in. But uh, for now, we're just adapting as we can with the restrictions. How has it affected you guys? I mean, how's this really, what's the effect been on for you guys just being here and being in the process? I think the hardest part was figuring out how to navigate through the beginning uh, just because there was so much unknown and there still is but you know really the beginning was all right where do we start where do we make the first adaptation to how we handle this and how do we get back to doing full-time work in the facility because uh, it basically grinded to a, a very minimal just you know make sure everything's safe um, and while we were keeping everything safe you know, we were itching the whole time to move a lot of projects forward. So as you could imagine, we got backlogged on a lot of our bigger projects. And, you know, as soon as we got back to actually being able to operate full time again, it was like hit the ground running. Let's see how much we can bite off at a time and really move forward. So that's been the biggest thing is that whenever we get out of our cycle um, and when we think about the wine industry and how everything works, it, it works on a cycle just, just like Mother Nature does. Okay. And as soon as you get out of that groove, you feel it as a winemaker, you feel almost like you're out of sync. Um, but again, trying to get the gears rolling again and get back into that cycle has been uh, crucial. And I feel like we finally got our, uh, our wheels back on oh, the yeah, rail. Sure. So. And, and I think, you know, the difference between operations now versus before is the number one thing we're worried about is running out of things since we are a little out of whack in our scheduling. So we're trying to just see, like, you know, what products we jump on to get the product moving to make sure we don't run out of something, you know, before we're tackling all the other things. So it's, it's been a balancing act. Yeah, it's a, definitely a balancing act. But what's been your what's been the response from the customers? How have they been handling Very supportive, and doing this with you? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, they just want their wine to be good. <laughs> so, okay. you know, they're not going to jeopardize that. I mean, one good thing about this whole coronavirus thing is that people are spending a bit more time at home, which means they're drinking a little bit more at home. <laughs> Um, overall, I think it's about a 12% increase as far as how much more people are drinking um, since two months ago. So that's not bad for us. We've definitely yeah. seen an uptick of uh, curbside pickup. Now, of course, you eliminate the tasting room uh, aspect. So it is just pickup, so it's a little bit different in general. But um, we're, we're definitely not seeing people staying away from us. You know, we're making uh, every opportunity possible for them to pick up their wines. And, um, of course, we're still supplying all of our vendors that are able to sell. Um, and a bunch of uh, different restaurants that have the licensing where they can actually sell bottles to go. Uh, we've been able to add them uh, due to our salesperson 
onto our list as well. So we have a handful more locations that you can actually pick up our bottles from nowadays too. So, so again, it's the forethought, it's the planning, it's the reacting, it's, it's coming together and trying to figure out how you can still deliver the same quality wine that you're shooting for yeah. and making sure your customers get that into their hands. Now, I remember we had done the TV show and I think about a week after the TV show, you were going to be doing a release yeah. mm -hmm. and then that stay-at-home order yeah. hit. So you, I don't know if you had that release or how no. you conducted the release. No, we did not have it. Um, this is, tonight is actually going to be our first attempt at a virtual release. All right, talk about how you're doing that. This sounds really exciting. This, this sounds like a lot of fun. This is going to be really cool. Um, I have high hopes for it. Um, so when people hear this, this will be about 10 days, two weeks. You've already had the release. Uh -huh. um, you know, everybody's happy. It went, it went tremendously well. So, <laughs> so we'll no, see, we'll no, see no hiccups, no glitches. Everything went perfect as, as planned. We'll see how wrong I am. Uh, no, but, uh, this will be really cool. So we're going to do uh, Facebook Live and Instagram Live at once. Um, and people are going to, you know, Jason's going to come on and speak, tell them what's going on with the business and, uh, uh, you know, get people all riled up about the fact that we're, you know, we're still here. We're still doing, you know, working on the wines. And at this point, people have already pre-ordered the Sauvignon Blanc and the Cap Franc Rosé. So they have them at home chilling right now. So they'll jump on. And these were the two we tasted on the TV show before, Yes. We didn't do the rosé. Yeah, we didn't do the rosé. You did a chardonnay. Yes. yes. Yes, yes, yes. That was delicious. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, I don't yeah. see it on the table, but that was delicious. <laughs> Suddenly I see things are missing. Okay. <laughs> well, the chardonnay made it out in the previous release. Okay. Um, yeah. It escaped. The yeah, chardonnay was, escaped, basically. It escaped COVID beforehand, <laughs> so we were able to pick that one up uh, um, in person. But um, So, you know, this is the time of the season where you're usually re releasing... Your, two, or your previous year's vintage of white wines and new rosés. Um, so we're hitting right in stride here. We're, we're releasing our two favorites from uh, this current vintage, and that's our Sauvignon Blanc and the Cab Franc Rosé. Um, so the other portion of what we're doing with the, the release today is that we're actually doing, we're paired up with Bad Mother Shuckers, and we did a two-course pairing with uh, for each of the wines, um, and we're going to be talking about them in the Instagram Live and Facebook Live portion of things. And, of course, our barrel customers, we also like to call them our VIPs, of course. So we're actually doing a Zoom call with them a half hour prior to the Instagram and Facebook Live portion of things. So uh, we're going to be dissecting the wines, dissecting the pairings, and uh, you know, talking about them very much. And then there's one other little add-on to the event tonight. Then afterwards, uh, Instagram Live is going to feature an Instagram takeover by musician Marielle Kraft. Um, who's a wonderful talent uh, out of Rhode Island and then eventually Delaware. Uh, but she plays all over the Mid-Atlantic, and she's just a huge talent. And she was sweet enough to agree to come on and take over and bring her audience over and uh, give a little performance, since no one can be here to actually enjoy a performance, which we would normally do for a release. Um, so, yeah, we got a pretty loaded night of uh, virtual fun. Grab your wine. Grab your pairing from Bad, Bad Mother Shuckers. Shuckers. Right. You've got entertainment. Put it on the big screen. Put your feet up. Yep. Just enjoy yep. the evening. Yep. All right. But we when can. all this is over, yeah. come back here Absolutely. and yes. do it in person. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Because I, I think wine, specifically, you know, or cocktails or beer or cider or whatever mead, it was meant. It was meant to be enjoyed together. Correct. It, it was meant to be shared in a group, um, and I think that's important. So, two of the things you're featuring tonight uh, are the rosé. The, Camp, the Cap Franc Rosé and the Sauvignon Blanc. Yep. Let's taste those. Let's talk about 
you know, what you were expecting or what your plan was. Talk about, you know, tasting notes, nose on that. If we could still get it through these, uh, through these nose coverings and stuff like that. The Sauv Blanc is so great, you can smell it through. <laughs> yeah, those are, you too. It smells a little bit of laundry detergent. So the unique, what's that? It does burst right through. I know. So the unique thing about uh, Sauvignon Blanc. I love, by the way, ever since we did the TV show, yeah. I love tasting with you guys. <laughs> no, I really did. I really enjoyed that part because I think it, it it gave a really great perspective and just enjoyed your whole you know thought process about that. You're, you know, as we said before, you're never wrong. So when you smell it and you say, so you're never wrong that I enjoyed it. That too. That too. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be wrong that I enjoyed that. When you smell it and you say like, oh, I smell lemon. You know, if someone says, no, 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 it's grapefruit. Like, there, there is no wrong answer because everyone smells and tastes just a little bit different. Right. Um, and things you grew up on greatly influence. Uh, if you grew up with a specific background of cooking, uh, say you're German, you, you know, your family had German cooking all the time, you'll identify a dish or, or a, a Spetzel. Why do I smell Spetzel in <laughs> yeah. this? But it's something that I may not know because I didn't grow up in that same background. Right. So it's very important to, to allow people to, to smell what they smell and taste what they taste. But... There are things that once we say it, you go, oh, wow, yeah, that is there. Uh, but the unique thing about Sauvignon Blanc is there's different kinds. Uh, if somebody says, I don't like Sauvignon Blanc, well, which one don't you like? Because you could be talking about New Zealand, which is very unique in its smell and flavor. You could be talking about a West Coast, very unique. You could be talking about a French, which is Sancerre, would be a wonderful Sauvignon Blanc, one of my favorites, one of Matt's favorites. Uh, I think we kind of hit all of them a little bit in their flavor profiles. At least well, this is a West Coast. Yes, this is uh, right? Columbia Valley, Washington. Okay. Uh, so if you talk about the highlights or the criteria of a West Coast Sauvignon Blanc, what, what is it that makes this different from the other two regions or the other areas, the French region, the Australian region, New Zealand region? What, what would make it different? So they're all going to be similar, like in certain parts of it. Um, but uh, there's things that people would immediately recognize. Uh, so say like citrus fruits or... Pamplemousse, uh, you know, grapefruit. Uh, these are things that immediately people would say Sauvignon Blanc. That's what I'm getting. Um, stone fruit. Uh, and Sauvignon Blanc is one of those grapes that, depending on the growing region, it reacts very differently. Yeah. Um, if you talk about like a Napa Valley Sauvignon Blanc versus a Washington State Sauvignon Blanc, you have very different climates and just microclimates in general. Much more warm in Napa than it is in Washington State. Um, and again, Sauvignon Blanc is one of those grapes, depending on where it's grown, it can show a whole different set of characteristics. Even if you try to make it exactly the same, it's a very difficult thing to do, especially when the grapes are from different places. Now in Napa, the warmer weather tends to make the grape be a little bit more dusty and earthy, so it gives you more like hay and straw characteristics, which I don't really like in my Sauvignon yeah. Blanc. Um, so the cooler climate mimics a little bit more of what we're used to seeing. Uh, from the European style of Sauvignon Blancs, like the Loire Valley and Saint Sarah. So I, I, I'm on my nose again, and this goes back to hey, this is what I smell. Right. But there was a, I guess there's also an approach that you're looking for too. I mean, I, for some reason, I, I pick up the grapefruit, mm -hmm. more of a citrus note. I also pick up strawberry, to me. So I, I don't know. Yeah, for me, it's it's a lot of stone fruits when you yeah. start thinking around like the nectarines and peach fruit. But okay, one that people are most not most. Most people are not used to smelling is gooseberry. gooseberry. Yeah. Um, usually, when you see gooseberry, you're not going to see the fruit itself to buy at a grocery store. You're going to find um, like maybe a jam, jam or yeah. Something. yeah, or a jelly or something. So like that. it's even hard to equate that because what I'm talking about is uh, in the way that I learned gooseberry is I planted a bush at home, <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's how you figured it out. Myself. And I was like, 
Now I know what gooseberry is. Okay. So it's easy to find it because when. when so what are the what are the so so this is, would be a nose. What would what would be like gooseberry? I mean, if you were to describe that to somebody. In in a way, it's like a, a green eating grape in in the way that it has that burst of acidity. Okay. Um, but it still has a very. It almost starts leaning towards it's giving you some of that stone fruit characteristic. So it kind of crosses paths with the nectarine sort of uh, profile in the nose. Um, when it comes over to the palate, you, you really do it just like it gives you more of the jammy aspect of gooseberry, which um, again is almost like almost like a grape jam in a way, um, but again more acidic. Okay. Um, so that's the fun part about gooseberry is that it covers like these two different realms of flavor profiles that usually fruit is a fruit's profile but gooseberry since it's this unique thing that we don't that most people don't have experience with it, it actually you know has flavor profiles from different fruits which all I right think so everybody right now has to run out and plant their own gooseberry <laughs> so now next time you <laughs> understand it. you'll understand what that is that's it brian yeah. I, you reminded me of something yeah. when we were on the tv show we talked about how to drink wine or how to taste wine now re-educate me about that how should i be sipping this wine what should i be doing okay i mean um, we did that we did the we did the view we did the legs we did the the color we did the nose so we'll do the the number one thing is holding the glass we hold by the stem when it's especially when right, it's i've already something. i've already like cratered this thing already <laughs> <laughs> especially Cradle when it. it's a white or, or rosé like we want to make sure that we're not warming it ahead of time um so we hold it on on here uh swirl now i know we've talked about swirling you can do it in your hand or you do it on the table and do little circles uh, that's, that's an easy way to make sure you don't splash yourself in the face. Uh, so as far as coloring goes, if you turn the glass on its side a bit, get a good look at it, the best thing to do is stick a piece of something white underneath, like a napkin, a paper towel, um, you know, a piece of paper even. Yeah, that's when you're getting the real color. That's when you're Wow, that changes. That's it weird. It changes a lot. Holy cow. <laughs> I don't have anything white. I'm, all, I'm, I'm, I'm running around the wineries now with a piece of white paper, and I'm just gonna—I'll like, <laughs> be like Crescent. Look how I changed the color. Yeah. Of that it's magic. No, it's great. Like you know, I'm, when I'm in a, a place with wine, I just—I'll grab a napkin real quick, like, lay it underneath, and look at it and go, "Oh, that's pretty." And then you find somebody's phone number on there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't call this. Um, so you do, so you do the swirl, um, and then take. Why a do nice, you do the swirl? Why do you do the swirl? Yeah. Wow. So this, we want to look at the legs. Okay. You're looking for the sugar content. Is that would that be the proper term? I just like legs. Oh, you just like legs. Okay. <laughs> so the real reason that you're actually doing the swirl is you're breaking the surface tension of the wine. When you break the surface tension, you're actually introducing a little bit of oxygen. When you introduce that oxygen, it makes the wine burst out inside of your glass and gives you all the aromas that you're looking for. Okay. Yeah. So really, the one, the one thing I, I tell people to do is pour the glass, let it sit for a few minutes, go take a smell, then do your swirl, then take a smell. You're going to get a much different... It changes. Absolutely. Especially as the oils or everything warm up, right? And, and it kind of changes and the nose. Really, the, the trigger is that little bit of oxygen making contact with your wine. Uh, it makes all those aromas pop out of the glass for you. Okay. Now we need to taste this and we we'll remove our masks and breathe deep. Quick. <laughs> <laughs> Now you taught me how to do that whole sucking in the mouth thing. The retronasal. Yeah. yeah we you. Is, it, is yeah. it just something that happens all the time now? Yeah. Is it? That's where we are in life. Wait, <laughs> you just, have you just been no matter it what it is, now? you're just drinking yeah, that. You're you just, just taking a sip of water, water and you're like, <laughs> I do it with coffee by accident all the time. <laughs> I'll do it with coffee. I'm like, why did I just do that? 
Yeah, every, something, when you get that, it creates that mist in the back. Right. A lot of times you get something. Now, what's like, the purpose of that? Why would you, why, why, I remember, you told me, but I don't remember, why, why is it that I should be doing that? So, when you actually deal with your taste, um, sense of smell is a big factor in taste. So when you create that fine mist, it triggers the whole olfactory senses to be part of the process. So it gets up into the back of your nasal passages, and then you're actually able to taste more uh, because that fine mist is bringing the whole sensory uh, factor into the process of tasting your wine. This is light. It's delicate. I get a little peach note, or I guess going back to that stone fruit idea that we yeah. talked about, yeah. right? Absolutely. What other, uh, the tasting notes, what other things would you describe about this? Yeah, my favorite thing of what we were able to get out of this vintage is what I've been searching for for the past four years as our head winemaker, um, and it's the River Rock Minerality okay. component. Um, the thing that I fell in love with, and I'm sure he fell in love with from Sancerre-style Savignon Blancs from uh, Loire Valley in France, is that they all have a distinct minerality to them. Uh, sometimes theirs go as far as being chalky and like limestone-y, um, which is a very distinct minerality. And this is the first time that we were actually able to capture a little bit of minerality to this wine. Um, in past vintages, they've been a little bit more straightforward, more fruit, 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 a little bit of acidity, clean drinking. This one, once it goes away, it leaves you with that stone fruit, but then there's just this touch of minerality hanging out there on the palate, which I love. You just connected with me because I'm listening to you go through that process, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking to myself, this lingers. I, I, I finished my last... Um, sip of this easily a minute ago and it's still on my palate yep. and you get that stone fruit you get the minerality that you talked about and that's just delightful mm -hmm. as you talked about the season or the reason why at the timing of the release we're in springtime this is the middle of May this is just a perfect bottle of wine yes. just to just to sip enjoy um, and, and just and just really experience what you're trying to produce there. That's just delightful. That really is nice. Yeah, we're very, very happy with this one. We um, actually sent this up to Finger Lakes International Wine Competition this year. Um, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers <laughs> crossed that we're looking Fingers at crossed that they actually do something with it. And then well, yeah, July. As of right now, they're yeah. still on, on par to do it in July. So okay. hopefully we'll be walking away with uh, five golds or five double golds. We'll I'll, take, yeah, I'll, take, I'll take a double gold <laughs> and four golds. You know, <laughs> so you have the rosé now? Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll finish what's here a little bit. We'll try the rosé. Now, whose who's baby are these? Are, is it a combination between both of these? I think we share that, the, the Sauvignon Blanc. I think we share that child. Okay. Um, you know, joint custody for sure. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> the rosé, I'll hand off to him because, you know, Cab Franc was a passion that he really wanted to do it as the rosé. Um, I just wanted to do a rosé uh, of high quality, but he was... Going back to that t-shirt idea. Exactly. Dudes okay. can drink it. Dudes so can drink rosé. You know, I... So I, I let him, you know, fight for making sure that Cap Franc was the, the main one that we got. So why did you pick Cap Franc for the rosé? Um, Cap Franc is one of my overall favorite varieties of grapes in general. Um, but in my years of drinking wines, especially rosés, I found Cap Franc to be one of the best performers. Uh, both from a visual aspect, it's very pretty, but the diversity and complexity of the palate and aroma that it can give you, I found it to be the most exciting, um, the most well-ranged, if you will. Um, so that's why I pushed for this. Um, in years past, uh, the ownership here was a little bit worried about making rosés with intention. It was more like, yeah, if we have leftover grapes, we'll make a rosé. Um, but 
I, I fought pretty hard this past year to make sure that we got the appropriate grape to make the appropriate intention wine. Um, so we got Cabernet Franc from California, um, near the Lodi Appalachian actually. And um, really what it was is me drawing on my, my thought of my style. And my style is derived from the love of Loire Valley France wines. And what this has turned into is you know, a hell of a passion project to try to capture a perfect rosé, and I think we finally did. Um, and what this really took to do is we took 2,000 pounds and we crushed and pressed all within 30 minutes. Um, granted, we had to do it about four different times because our press only is so big, uh, but Brian and I were here till like 1 a.m. crushing and pressing, getting all sorts barefoot of Barefoot, pressing, <laughs> stomping the grapes, right? there's no barefoot <laughs> process, but with how sticky we end up, it would seem like we might have been doing that Okay, all day. But... Um, Really, the big thing is about making a rosé is how much pigmentation, how much tannin do you want in the wine? Because all that comes from the skins. Um, so what we're looking for is a very, very lightly pigmented uh, rosé so that it's almost like this rose gold color that it's giving you right you now. You know, it really is. Yeah. So if exactly. you think about, you know, rose color, rose gold jewelry, this is exactly what the color of this is. Exactly. And it doesn't get much more pretty than that. No, it really doesn't. Rosé wine. And, and Brian brought us white paper, so now we can, <laughs> we can, we can play with that a little bit. Yeah, so it really shows you just the brilliance of the wine itself. Um, and really what, what we did once we did about that 30-minute press process to get it off the skins, we, we knew that's what it takes to keep our rosés light because in years past, uh, they've definitely stretched that timeline. So they were darker? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And every second that your juice spends on the skins, the darker they get, but also the more tannic they get. So they would get overly dry okay um, and almost be abrasive to the palate so my question is so you press this mm -hmm. is it in some sort of a vessel where you're holding this and then you just drain it all out how does that work through the process of yes. getting the juice away from the skin so you get to that point where this is pleasure pleasurable and what you're looking for so what we would do we'd run the first uh, set of the grapes through the crusher itself so crush de-stab um, and then it, we would actually pump it right up into our press. And what our press is a vertical uh, bladder press. So it has this big uh, rubber bladder down the middle and a silver uh, slatted frame on the outside. So what happens is we fill it all the way up, put the lid on, and then we engage to start filling that bladder with water. And that bladder pushes against all the must that's inside of uh, the, the press. And that pushes out the juice. It comes down to the uh, bottom area and it goes through a strainer and up into our vessel. Um, and then within a day, it came up to room temperature, and we started fermenting right away. Um, and the one thing we did do that is even more key to keeping this uh, rosé beautiful is uh, cold fermentation, uh, which is another thing that actually happened at a Sat Blanc as well. Yeah. We did all our um, whites that way this year. Yes. So what's the key? What's important? Why is cold fermentation important? So when you are fermenting your red wines, it's nice to have room temperature because it helps extract more of the pigmentation from the skin. Okay. But when you have higher temperatures in white wines and rosé wines, uh, the yeast can actually cannibalize some of the flavors uh, during that process because of uh, temperature spikes. Um, so by keeping our temperature range between about 62 and 65 degrees, we're keeping the yeast just in a warm enough spot where it's happy to do its uh, conversion of sugar to alcohol and making all those beautiful flavors for us um, without actually cannibalizing any of those flavors. So that was the big key here, is that we wanted to hang on to all the little pretty nice parts of the fruit that happen um, 
and we didn't want to let go of any of those during the fermentation process. So by keeping it cold and selecting the right type of yeast. Yeah, how does, so how does that go through the process? What, what's the process of selecting that proper yeast? <laughs> a lot of research. And, and, uh, and what is it specifically yeah. you're looking for? You know, does, does the yeast impart any flavor to this? Um, or is it just how it's going to react with the sugars from, from the grape? So when, when it comes to yeast selection, it definitely has a lot to do with just experimentation over time. Um, you know, in my years of making wine, you try this, you know, I didn't like that so much, and you try this. But there's a lot of research just going and checking out the companies that are making commercial yeast that we can use, um, where they isolated those strains of yeast from. One of the yeast strains that we used for the Savignon Blanc was an actually a yeast strain isolated in the Loire Valley in France. Okay. So that was a natural selection for us uh, this year. Um, but in years past, we've tried different things with rosés and getting different results. Each yeast that you use results in different flavor profiles in the wine, um, all the while still keeping some of the flavor profile from the grape itself, of course. Uh, it's just a matter of what that yeast is going to showcase as a byproduct of actually performing the fermentation on that specific type of juice. Talk, talk about the nose of this a little bit and, and the expectation of that. I, I always get strawberry on this guy. Um, For me, the fun part is, is that you can almost smell a little bit of a creamy uh, characteristic there. Uh, I find I find it very fun uh, <clears throat> to have that little bit of creamy structure there. Um, just because I know that we're going to get into something when we get to the palate that it's not going to be so light-bodied that it, it just disappears in your palate. Um, but that little bit of creaminess with the strawberry, a little bit of uh, cherry there too. Um, so you're having... Thank you for that. Because... My mind was thinking, and I was picking up cherry, but I just couldn't think about what it was. Yeah. So thanks for that. The one little unique one, if, uh, if you've ever had experience with uh, lychee fruit. Okay. There's a little bit of that hanging in this nose as well, which I find... Gooseberry and lychee fruit. This has been a whole new experience with things I didn't expect to talk about today. <laughs> see, see, I'm that crazy person when, when we're actually able to go to the grocery store and act like insane people. I'm the asshole walking around just smelling everything, sticking my nose all over everything. So I I'm think the reason that, actually, that's a good idea. I mean, I, I think you've introduced something that's really smart. If you want to get your um, nose or, or your mindset to understand the different things and complexities, whether it's wine or you know even whiskey or anything like that, it really comes out to smell different things. Yeah, because you know, the crazy thing about wine tasting in general is that it's very subjective. It's not any one person is going to have the exact right answer. Every single one of us tastes wine differently because it's all built off of what we've come into contact over our life. Now, I might have tasted lychee fruit. He may not have. You know, so that we both don't have that set of smells. Right, until you really have yeah. that experience, you exactly. can't bring that into the exactly. conversation. Right? Exactly. But that's why it's nice, because if he says one thing and I say another, you can get two different ends of it. Mm -hmm. If we experience all the same things, the same, if we were like twin brothers and experience all the same things, we'd have all the same tasting notes, and they'd probably <laughs> be very, uh, very short. Very short <laughs> and very simple, you know? All right, so we're going to do that tasting thing. Let's do it. So you tell us, what do you got? You know, it's really fun. It's like this creaminess on the palate. It really is. Yeah. That's really cool. Mm. It's almost that, that residual that just kind of sits in the back. Mm. Little dryness yeah. that finishes. And it just, just kind of sit there and I get a little strawberry. Um, that's, I don't get the lychee because I haven't had that yet. So I, <laughs> the I lychee was more I can't one. really talk about that. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think the fun part about 
you know, the palate of this one again. That creamy structure is absolutely. Fun. It's there. Yeah. No. No. Look. This is cra- that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, when you really start peeling back the layers of this wine, you can actually find the root of the Cap Franc grape. Um, Cap Franc grape is known for having like green pepper characteristic to it. Um, and I, I'm starting to get a little pepper. Find it. Yeah. I, I can't say it's green pepper. It's towards the end of it. But okay. Yeah. But no, I was thinking a little peppery note to them. That's the best part of Cap Franc, honestly, <laughs> for me. So the habit in the rosé is wonderful. Although I don't get the red pepper like I do in your obsidian. <laughs> That's pepper it's three a ways, more right pepper. <laughs> which is delicious. If if you really want to try uh, a, a bottle of something really incredible, your, your obsidian is still by far one of my favorites. Thank you. Produce, a few bottles yeah. left. You yeah, act now. Act now. <laughs> act now. There's got to be a barrel somewhere with more happening. So <laughs> next year, yeah. Okay. We're getting yeah. the next one teed up to, okay. to go into bottle. Wow, it even gets a gold label. <laughs> oh yeah, it gets what it deserves. Gotcha. <laughs> Now, this is nice. So these are two releases right now that you're doing the virtual for. What other things do you have in the works that people can expect down the road that, that you're going to be producing? Pinot Gris. Pinot Gris. Okay. Yeah. The next in the white wines for the season is our Pinot Gris. And then we have actually a, a fun uh, blend of Gewürztraminer and Riesling from our 2019 vintage. And when does that one come out? I'm hoping for sometime in the next month or so. Okay. Um, there's some other process behind it to when we'll be able to get it out, we'll but see. I definitely want to try to capture you know warm weather season as that's the best time to have these you know white wines hit the market. It, it's kind of uh, unnecessary to release a white wine in fall because uh, that's when everybody's starting to think about those big bold reds. Although, again. <laughs> although I, I know that, you know rieslings and gewurztraminers go really nice with with fall style foods though. True, so especially it, Thanksgiving. Yeah, so it's, a, it's a good one. Everybody always for Thanksgiving. I do, yeah. Let's, let's just say do. mark your calendar for soonish. Okay, soonish. <laughs> uh, like, like, like the governor. Hey, when are we going to get to do what we want? Oh, soonish. We'll yeah. let you know. You know, yeah. we haven't figured that out yet, right? Yeah. But Stay beyond, at home, be safe, drink wine, and we'll let you know. Yeah. yeah. Beyond that, we do have a, a few other red wines teed up. We have a, a Syrah that's going to be coming out very soon. Yes. Um, also, we expect to get Brian's first uh, Bordeaux blend, which was his personal blend that he put together for us. Um, still finalizing a name for it right now, but as soon as we finalize a name and a label, that bad boy is going to get its release day probably alongside with the Saran, um, probably the Pinot Gris at the same time. Um, we're looking to do another one of these virtual tastings, hopefully in the next month, month and a half. The so. exciting thing is, and virtually as well, is you may get some people a little bit farther out that don't know about you yet, but yeah. the buzz comes, the word comes, and virtually people can start to see what you're doing. Right. Yeah. And you're shipping, or is Correct. it just is it just pickup? How does yeah, the shipping ship. work right now? Shipping as well, yeah. I mean, you can go to our website, uh, stonekeysellers.com, and uh, place your orders there, absolutely. And as more things become available, more things will show up on the website. Yeah, and uh, we through our website as well, we use Vino Shipper, so um, we can actually ship out of state to certain states uh, that are, you know, of course, allowed to <laughs> receive shipments from us. Um, but yeah, so we're able to ship to a lot of different places at this point. Pennsylvania is obviously no brainer. We can ship anywhere. anywhere in Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah. I Pennsylvania. mean, even sister New Jersey can get some of this. And no, Jersey's Jersey. actually Jersey. the only ones, but at least they can drive over here. All right, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because everybody drives to Jersey to get stuff there, and now <laughs> if they want to get some good wine, they come here to Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's a racket, man. <laughs> I, I'm excited. As we get to meet each other, and, and, and I'm watching the progressions, and, and these wines get even more special every time you release them. Um, I, I'm blessed and grateful for the time we, we get to share. I'm looking forward to all the new stuff that's coming out of what you're producing. 
Is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk to about today that you want to kind of interject? Not that blank stare. I mean, no. Yeah. I just, at this point, I want to turn it over to Jason because he's got a lot of stuff to talk to you about about what's going on with both businesses and and uh, you know how he started all this. So, but uh, as far as our our area, no, I think we covered. Thank it all. you very much. Oh, uh, you're welcome. No, thank you. I mean, thanks for making the time and with with the Anytime. whole coronavirus thing, we've been trying to work this out. Actually, I think this is like two months in that we were trying to get something scheduled. <laughs> this has been fine. So look for the virtual um, tours, the virtual reality stuff coming up soon. When all this is lifted, definitely make a you know make your time. You, you got to come to Stone and Key Cellars in Montgomeryville. It's very easy to get to, uh, plenty of parking, but you never know what you're going to be producing. Producing, you come here, you're going to get. We'll talk to Jason about you know, some ciders and some homebrew stuff. But your phenomenal wines. But this is definitely a place you want to come and check out. Thanks, all sir. right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for Appreciate joining it. us. Good seeing you as always. You got it. Thank you.